from Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. We come before you, Father, so woefully unworthy of you. But yet you chose to save us and to bring us here this Sunday morning. Everyone in this room, Lord, that you have claimed as your own, you purify us, even though we don't deserve it, Lord. Would you open our hearts to hear your word this morning and teach us from it? Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, good morning. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We've got a few of the other pastors uh, around here in different spots. Um, definitely make sure you get to know them, uh, Brian, Derek, and, and Brent. Uh, but we appreciate you guys being here this morning uh, on this last Sunday in, in January. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 6, or you can use the, the app on your phone, or we'll have the verses up on the screen as well. But I know for me personally, uh, it's just there's just something about having a book in front of me, even um, especially when it comes to, to reading God's Word that I think makes... Um, just makes, makes it more powerful, makes it more special to me in some way. Uh, but as we look at the text today, um, I, I kind of need to just get a, a few things out of the way. Um, you're going to see a striking number of similarities uh, in the text this morning uh, to uh, the text that we looked at last week, uh, which was uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And um, I promise to you, though, that there, there are a few differences. There, I, I know that Paul frequently tends to... Um, repeat himself over and over again in many different ways. Um, and if you've ever wondered why he does that, it's because human beings need to be told the same thing over and over again so that they'll listen. Uh, but he's actually, uh, in many ways, not actually regurgitating the exact same thing that he had said in the previous verses. He is talking about something distinctively a little bit different here than he was uh, last week. Uh, but before I dive too far into those differences, uh, let me first attempt to quickly review uh, what we saw last week uh, in those first 14 verses. So Paul last week was attempting to answer this question or this objection to the idea of the gospel and, and how it has saved and redeemed us to grace from sin, right? And this was the question. If sinning causes 
grace to abound. And what he meant by that is if you are in sin and you're sinning and God has forgiven you in Christ, therefore grace is abounding because God's mercy is even greater the more sinful you are. Right? If you remember that famous passage in, in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking with a teacher of the law and he gives them the, the example of two separate sinners and one who has sinned much and one who has sinned little. And he says, which one is going to be more indebted to his master? And the, the Pharisee says, well, I suppose the one that had more that he was forgiven of and Jesus said you have judged correctly. Right, so basically what Paul is saying here is that to, for those that have sinned much and, and have come to kind of like the full uh, clarity and weight of their sin in their life and seen it that, that grace abounds in their life. And so the question then kind of comes up and arises if sinning causes grace to abound therefore we get to experience the love and uh, love and mercy of God more fully shouldn't we just sin more so we can experience more grace to put the to pose the question a different way should we live licentiously or uh, doing whatever we want in order to experience more of God's grace and Paul's answer was adamantly no right he he said uh, in verse 2, by no means should that be what we do. And, and he actually goes so far as to kind of say, in, in, in saying by no means, that to ask a question like that is proof that you do not understand the gospel. That it's a failure to understand what has taken place if you've become a disciple, disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, we are in union with him. As Paul uses the terminology in Romans chapter 6, he actually says that we are baptized into Christ, meaning that there is something supernatural that happens that when you come to faith in Christ through repentance and believing that this saving faith actually baptizes you into the life of Jesus and you identify with his death and then also with his resurrection, meaning you're dead to your former life of rebellion towards God and now alive for the very first time in your life to the things of God, that you are raised to new life with Jesus. And therefore, because of both the practical and the doctrinal realities of that being true of anyone who believes and follows Jesus, Paul gave some charges. He says, put off the old self, which kind of means break your old habits and your old ways of thinking, know it to be wrong, and then respond to it. Instead, live what you know to be true about God, which is obedience to him brings joy. And he kind of gave some practical ways that we could pursue that out. And we talked about those, that you continuously preach this good news to yourself, that you remind yourself, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm not dead anymore. I'm alive to God for the first time. I'm adopted as a son or daughter of the God who created me. And because of that, right, I'm dead to sin and I can actually not sin anymore. That it, I can do what is necessary to break sinful habits, which is get into community, pray, read my Bible, serve, repent. That there's lots of kind of practical things you can do to put sin to death and therefore experience more joy and obedience to Christ. And that by starting to serve God and obey Him, it's important because it both honors God and helps you to experience more joy. So that's what we looked at last week. Basically, this idea of, hey, o obedience to God, right, isn't, isn't that kind of an unnecessary thing because sinning actually allows God's grace to abound, therefore making him look more beautiful? And Paul's argument is no. Now, as we get to verse 15, 
verse 15 is a transition off of verse 14. So let me read verse 14 to you again so that we understand kind of the context of where Paul is coming from and the text that we're looking at more closely this morning. He says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, let me real quickly kind of unpack what Paul is saying there. Right? Remember last week the example I shared of, of this idea of sin's control over us and how we are dead to it, and we compared it to uh, kind of a, a military occupation? That if you are in a military-occupied city of, by, a, by a foreign army, and the army of your country comes in and liberates the city, that doesn't mean necessarily that the opposing army will not in some way kind of try to still continue to oppose the, prop, the, the proper authorities, that they won't attack, that they won't cause issues. But the authority that you're under once you've been liberated is the new government. And that we as human beings, if we are in Christ, have been liberated from sin to live for God. Meaning that the ruler and reigner of our lives is no longer our sinful, habitual, licentious lifestyles. Our, our desire to be self-righteous or to, to pick ourselves up and live the way that we think is best for our own lives. But we can actually live towards and unto God for the first times in our lives. And we're underneath his authority now. And so we're no longer under the dominion of sin, as he says there in verse 14, because we're no longer under the law, but under grace. Now, that's going to end up making us have to take a step back and think about the second half of that verse, because it's going to raise some questions for us, right? He says this, right? Since you are not under law, but under grace. What does it mean to not be under the law, but under grace? And this is different because if you dig a little deeper at the question that's, being, that's going to be asked there, he's kind of asking not so much can we live openly and freely however we want, because that's the question he answered previously, but he's saying why should we have any motivation to live in accordance with the law now as believers if we are no longer under that? Everybody see what I'm saying? If we, if we, gotta, if we just maybe turned that down one more notch and thought through it a little bit more on a, on a micro level. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. What is my motivation for wanting to obey the Ten Commandments if I'm no longer under the law but under grace? And remember, right, a lot of Paul's, right, audience is going to be former Jews who have now become Christians, and they're constantly trying to wrestle with this question, what is my relation to the Old Testament law and now my freedom in Christ? How do the Old Testaments and the New Testaments work together? It's a question that sadly, right, I would venture to guess most of you in this room have no idea how to answer. Because if one thing I've learned about us as Christians over the years, we love the New Testament, but we don't really get into the Old Testament very much, right? It's scary. There's things in there we don't understand. There's a lot of rules and regulations. And so the question comes for us as Christians then, well, what role does the law play? It, if I'm no longer under the law, but under grace, is there really any motivation for me to follow the law at all? And so let's look at verse 15. Look what Paul says. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And look at what he says there again. By no means. Sound familiar? 
Literally the exact same thing he said last week when asking if we should just live licentiously and crazily so that we might let grace abound. It's the same exact objection. Meaning, what Paul is saying is that, that if you were reading this and you thought, okay, I'm not under the law anymore. I definitely don't need to follow any of the Old Testament laws, rules, and rituals any longer because I'm under grace. If that's the first thing that pops into your mind when you read verse 14, Paul's saying you don't get it. You don't understand the relationship of God to his word, and you don't understand what obedience to God looks like, that you do not get how the law and the gospel work together. And, and to be perfectly honest, I think this is kind of one of those fine lines that we as Christians are constantly trying to walk. Like, What is the balance between living a life of obedience unto God, but also not living to find my justification in that performance? And so the question we're asking is, what do we not get about the law and the gospel and how they work together? So let's look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You guys, can you guys see what Paul's saying there? If you, if you read that verse closely, here's, here's what he's saying. That every human being faces this reality in verse 16. That there's not a person on earth, American, Russian, Chinese, Indonesian, Indian, Muslim, South American, you know, wherever you grew up, there is not a single person on this planet that is not not faced with the reality of what we see in verse 16. That every human being is enslaved to something. Tracking that? Look, Look at what he says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's saying everyone's a a slave to either sin, which leads to death, or or a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness, or a slave to God. Think about the full weight of what Paul is saying here. He's saying your actions, right? This means what you do, what you do matters. That your actions indicate what you worship or what you serve. Everybody tracking me there? That, that your actions reveal n- not so much like in the actions themselves, but they reveal your heart. They reveal what you serve and what you run after. They, re- they reveal that you either worship God or you worship false gods. And the reality is, is that you and I Offer ourselves up to the things that we desire or seek after. Right, this is one of the things right, that I think is really interesting just in general about how um, we at, as Christians kind of answer like deeper philosophical questions. Like, have you ever noticed that there tends to be, especially inside the church, a lot of arguments between like the sovereignty of God and free will? 
Some people say yes, some people say no, some people are like, Kevin, you have no idea what, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? But there, there tends to be within the church, right, this idea of like, do I have free will, or, or does, is God sovereign in all things, or, or can both be true, and how do those things work together? And I, I think what's really interesting is, is I tend to not get too caught up on that, because I don't think human beings are free in the sense that we believe freedom exists, Right? To, to be truly free means you have the, the ability to choose or do anything at any given time that you want. Right? That is kind of like the definition, that's a, like kind of a Greek philosophical idea of what free will is. That you could be, have a, a, an entire list of possibilities or outcomes listed before you, you can choose whatever you want. I would submit to you that there's not a single person in here that meets that definition because every single one of us has some sort of external right, desire or thing that we're seeking after that will drive our decision making, right? For example, right, how many of you guys are going to go out to lunch today after you leave church? Okay, about half the room. Okay, and when you go to the particular restaurant or wherever you're going, there's going to be a menu in front of you with probably about 60 different things to choose from, right? It's always the worst part of the meal experience with my wife because she's so indecisive she can never decide what she wants to eat, and so you sit there before the meal, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have so many choices. And here's what the thing, right? If you're really free, you can choose whatever you want on that menu. But what's actually going to be driving you in that moment? Price? Taste? Smell? Calories? Right? That there's different things that are going to be driving your decision to where, you know, if I went, every time I went to Chick-fil-A, if I did what I wanted, I would get a milkshake, two Chick-fil-A sandwiches, an eight-pack of chicken nuggets, and probably a large fry. And then I would die terribly of a heart attack at the age of 35. Right? That... That the idea is, is that there are things that drive our decision making and, and certain times even like practicality overrides even sometimes desire. Because we know, hey, what's a, what's a greater desire in this situation? Is the desire greater for me to have something that tastes delicious or is the desire greater for me to not have blood pressure that's going to make my heart explode? Right, that constantly we're dealing with this idea of whether we're really free or not. And what Paul is saying is, you're not. Every human being is enslaved to something. Now the question we should ask is not so much, am I a slave, but what am I a slave to? Because here's the thing. I would submit to you that if you are not offering yourselves unto God, here are some things that you might be offering yourself to. Power. Right? You desire political influence, work influence, or leadership influence, and you do whatever you need to do to seek out that particular God in your life. Acceptance. Right? The approval of others and their friendship means more to you than just about anything. Right, being accepted, fitting in, being part of the crowd, being liked. Money. Money often leads to power, but oft, for a lot of people it's just a means to an end to accumulate more and more and more of it. And they'll center their lives around trying to accumulate more and more and more wealth. Right, how many of you guys have ever watched Shark Tank? Right, a good majority of the room. There, there's a guy on there who, who shares the same name as me and he's kind of like the jerk of the show. His name's Kevin. They also call him Mr. Wonderful, I think. And... Here's the thing about that guy. I feel so sad for him. 
He's one of the richest guys in that room, and if you ever hear him talk, what is, he so, what is his sole purpose? More money. It's like the only thing he cares about. Like what, what could he possibly do with more money? I, I can't, like, buy a country? <laughs> like, like, at this point, I honestly don't know. Right? But that's his sole driving purpose. He's a slave to it. Love. Right? A lot of you guys will surrender yourself to the idea that your life will finally find meaning when you find it in some other person. That life's not complete until you have your soulmate, which, by the way, doesn't really exist. hate to break it to you. There's no such thing as the one. Because love is a choice. If you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I know that's a really cute wedding passage that people love to, to share all the time at their wedding. Not banging on you if you did, by the way. But it's actually a, a passage on the church and how they're supposed to interact with the world. And every single one of, every time that Paul explains love, he uses a word that describes an action. Love is patient. Either you choose to be patient or not. It's an action. Love is kind. Either you choose to be kind or you're not. Love does not boast. Either you choose to boast or you don't. Right? The list goes on and on, but that love is a choice. Therefore, by definition, when you enter into a romantic relationship with somebody and claim that you love them, you are making a choice to love them and to make that choice every day whether they deserve it or not. And there are many of us that think that love is some... um, out-of-body experience that will somehow bring fulfillment to our lives, and so we seek it with reckless abandon at all costs. Last one I have down here is fame. Being popular or famous is the key to your happiness. And as we offer ourselves up to these things, the more we offer ourselves to them, the more we become enslaved to them. And, here, and here's what I mean by that. Let's think about even just like probably the one that's most common of most people in this room. Right? I, I would venture to guess that most of us in this room on some level struggle with the idea of offering ourselves up to what I call the God of acceptance. Right? Seeking the approval of others, wanting their, um, their, their approval and decisions that we make. We want them to like us. That, that that's what we're all about. And here's the thing, right? We see it, like, we kind of see it as a good thing. Hey, it's, it's good to be liked. It feels good. It's nice to have friends. Like, community is important. Relationships are important. But here's the reality. That can quickly turn from a good thing to a bad thing, right? Because if you are serving the God of acceptance, you allow your actions to be dictated by how others might think and react to them, not what you actually may think about a given situation. Right? That's pretty much all of middle school and high school, peer pressure. Oh, I can't do that. My friends might not like me. Can't be involved with that. I might not make any friends. Can't do that. I am going to do that because they'll like me even though I don't really want to do it. That's the very definition of allowing acceptance to run your life, and you're enslaved to it. Right? The disapproval of others is often emotionally distressing to you. Sounds like slavery. The praise and affirmation of others is what you seek, and when you get that praise, you feel fulfilled. Well, who, are, who are you getting that fulfillment from? Another human being. You're, in many ways, enslaved to them. 
That these things that we allow ourselves to seek after and run after often have the appearance of being harmless, and yet they are not. And here's the thing, guys. Slavery to sin leads to the same thing every time, according to Paul. Death. Not just eternal damnation in the sense of what we understand from justification, how we often think about this stuff, right? Because whenever we hear the word death, we think, oh, okay, like eternal torment in hell and separation from God. But I would submit to you that slavery to sin actually leads to a type of death of enjoyment of life. It's death to true freedom and enjoying what God might have for you. It's death to joy. It's death to peace, because slavery to acceptance does this. There's no freedom because you're constantly working. If, you're, if your idol is acceptance, you are constantly working to try to keep the approval of others going. It never ends. If you seek after the approval of others, there's no joy because there's never enough love that someone can give you. There's never enough affirmation that they could give you, and there's always the chance that they might pull that affirmation away from you if you have earned it. There's no peace because you can't rest because you never know if you've done enough. And yet what Paul says here in verse 16 is that slavery to God offers the opposite. Love, joy, peace, self-control, kindness. That those are the things that come with obedience to righteousness instead of obedience to sin or slavery as he uses there. Now, so... So what are you enslaved to, right? Look at verses 17 and 18 because it's going to reveal some things to us. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So if you guys are like me, if you read, you know, kind of these first couple of verses and you started maybe, you know, maybe even as I was talking about the idol of acceptance there, right, there's a tendency to kind of be like, oh, darn, that's me. <laughs> you know, like guys, I, I've, I've told the church this in the past that one of the most sinful things I do is let you guys become my God and seek your approval above the approval of my heavenly father. And that's not only bad for me, but it's bad for you guys, <laughs> Because not only does it rob me of joy, but it makes you guys kind of into many gods. And no offense, but you guys make bad gods. Just like I do. And, and so this, there's kind of like this, this robbing myself of joy. And so when I read this, I'm like, man, like, am I enslaved to that? Like, what is going on here? And there's this beautiful reminder when you get to verse 17 of what Paul wants to make sure we understand. He's like, look, he had said in verse 14, you are no longer slaves to that though, and he reminds us us of that again in verse 17, right? You who were once slaves of sin are no more in slavery to that sin, but look at what he says, having become obedient from the heart to the standard of which God has set. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that. That word standard there is the Greek term for a, a, a cast molding. So what Paul is saying there, and he's talking about like molten metal, like a, a, like a cast, of, a, like being able to build something. And so what he's saying there is God, in changing our hearts, has poured us 
in this supernatural change that has occurred when we come to Christ, has poured our hearts into this new mold of divine truth where our desires, our thoughts, our worldview are all changed and they're being molded into his image and his standard instead of our own. That's not something you can do on your own, that God has done this. This is why God is often called the potter and we're called the clay. That Paul's saying, like, by definition, you were slaves to sin, and God has rescued you out of that and has remolded you so that you might be slaves to him and obedient to him. And as we saw last week, this means that there is now an innate desire in the heart of Christians to know and obey God. And so the question kind of becomes, what is your deepest desire? Right, here is frequently, like, one of the things I've noticed in ministry over the, over the years is that we tend to kind of every once in a while, especially if we find ourselves in a season where like we're habitually struggling with something, we'll kind of ask ourselves this question, am, am I really a Christian? Am I, am I really saved? Am I really a follower of God? Right, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever asked yourself that question? Right? You see your sin and you see the magnitude of it. And I think a, a, a quick question to answer, because sometimes what we're told, even in the church, is like, well, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't do that thing. It's not really helpful. Right? That's, you know, actually the definition of legalism. One of the things that Jesus had issues with when he walked the earth. But here's what I would submit to you. If we understand what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 6, the question you should be asking yourself, if you're looking at your sin, you should say, well, what is my deepest desire in regards to this sin? What is my deepest desire? Do I want to continue to live in this sin? Or do I desire to see God put it to death and, and take it away from me? What is my deepest desire? And sometimes that's not a question that's answered in 30 seconds. Sometimes it's a question that takes prayer. Sometimes it's a question that takes time to seek in your word. Sometimes that's a question that gets answered as you sit in the counsel of other uh, men and women in the church that love God. But I reminded years ago as I was listening to a sermon by uh, a guy named Mark Driscoll, right, he said that there was a guy in his church, and, 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 and excuse me, there were two men in his church, and they were coming to him for some counseling. And one of the things that was really interesting uh, about these situations is that most, both men were caught in adultery. And he said, one of the first things I ever do when I'm counseling somebody is I try to figure out whether they're really a follower of Christ or not. And so you know, their sin of adultery had been exposed, and as he sat with him, he said, I asked the one man, and I said, what, what is your deepest desire? You know, what, what is your deepest desire in this situation? And the guy said, my deepest desire is I, I want to continue to sleep around and and have sex with my secretary and, you know, enjoy life. And he said, in that moment, I knew hey, this guy's not a believer. He's not a follower of Jesus. He's like, and I, and I, I, I offered to the guy, I explained the gospel to him and told him that, that God could change him, but he didn't desire that. He divorced his wife, and the kids went through a messy divorce, Right? And he continued to do his thing. And was the other man he sat down with, he asked me, he said, you know, you've been caught in adultery, what do you want to do? And the guy said, my deepest desire is to be a godly father and wife, a husband to my wife. And he said, okay, well let's start working through a process of what repentance looks like in this situation then. 
because in the one see the guy's deepest desire was to obey God. He may not have done it, but his deepest desire was to honor the Lord, whereas the other guys was not. And that as true Christians, true followers of Christ, by definition of what we've been seeing in Romans chapter 6, will desire the things of the Lord more than anything else. This doesn't mean you don't sin, but that your deepest desire will be to honor God and to know him more fully and enjoy him. And so, Paul's basically saying here, guys, if you are truly in Christ, you've been set free to enjoy God and to enjoy freedom of obedience to him for the first time in your life. To desire to obey him and honor him above all things. And so when you get to verse 19, look at what he says. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. I love this. Paul basically says two things here, right? First he says this analogy of slavery is just so you can try to understand who you were and who you are now. It's actually a lot more complicated than this, but I'm trying to just kind of explain this to you in a way that you can understand. But know this, and this is the second point, his second point. When you feed sin, it grows exponentially. Look at what he says. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, and look what he says, leading to what? More lawlessness. Meaning if, if, if you seek the acceptance of others and the more you seek that, guess what you're going to need more and more of? Acceptance. You're going to do whatever it takes to get that. I think like a, a pretty easy to understand example of this is lying. Right? If you, if you for some reason feel the need to lie to somebody, what inevitably has to come from that lie? More lying. Right? Especially if they start figuring out, hey, I think I think Kevin might be lying to me. Well, I can tell more lies to try to cover up the initial lie. This is why typically you'll notice that like police, when they're questioning somebody, they'll question somebody multiple times and they'll ask the same questions in different ways over and over again. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to get a different story so they can catch the person in the lie or not. Right, to catch whether they're actually telling the truth or they're making it up as they go and they're forgetting minor details of the story each time when they tell it. And then they're writing all this down and they're recording all of it so that they can go back and say, well, wait a minute, you told me this. And then the second time I asked you the question, you told me this. And those two things don't match up. So one of them is true and one of them isn't. That when you feed sin, when you give yourself over to sin, right, it exponentially grows. But that in Christ... We are slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, meaning that sin can no longer force you to do anything. Your sinful desires no longer have dominion over you. And instead, right, Paul says this, motivate and present yourselves to serve God. As a Christian, you can do that. You can actually see sin put to death and motivate yourself unto the Lord to make much of him. You've been put in Christ. You're dead to sin, molded to obedience. Basically what Paul's saying is, hey, something supernatural occurred 
when saving faith came upon you. And when the Holy Spirit was given to you, God started doing some sort of like molding and spiritual surgery to your heart that you are different than you were before. Right? The language that he uses is you were once dead and now alive. Basically what Paul is saying is, hey, here's what's true of you. Act like it. That this is actually true of Christians. All you need to do is act as if it were true. Act upon what is true about who you are. To go back to our example again of the military occupying forces in a city. Right? When, the, when the French cities were deoccupied, right? when, when Germany was pushed out of those cities, how crazy would it have been for the French to run back out and start giving intel to the German armies outside the city? It's crazy. And we'd be like, why would somebody do something like that? As my pastor used to say, and he would use this analogy, he would say, it's as if you and I were in our coffins and that God opened up the grave and brought us to life again, and yet we frequently want to walk back into the graveyard and hang out in our coffin. And Paul is saying, live your life as if you've been raised from the dead, and there's no need to go back and hang out in the graveyard. I don't know about you guys, graveyards are kind of creepy. Like not really interested in hanging out in them. Now look at what he says in verses 20 through 22, because there's going to be one last objection to everything he's saying here, and he's going to try to answer it. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So you're going to get these questions, well, what, what about my freedom? You're saying I'm free, but what about my freedom? Like, am I really free? And Paul's kind of like, well, I thought we covered this already, but okay. Right? You aren't free. You're slaves to something. But let's just, for the sake of argument, let's stop for a minute. Paul's saying, if by saying you're not a a slave unto God or a slave to righteousness, in a sense, you are right in saying that you are free. That's a common objection of people outside the church who who aren't followers of God. I can't follow God. There's too many rules and restrictions and things on me. I, I, I want my freedom. It's a common objection to the gospel. And, and Paul's saying, okay, in some sense, you are free if you aren't in Christ. You're free from righteousness. Everybody tracking what that means? He's saying, you are free from doing things and living life in a way that will bring you joy. Congratulations. That you are, you are free from living a life that will bring you the most joy. That, that is true. You are free from that. Do you guys, let me, let me break this down a little bit further. Do you guys get God's commands? And I don't mean like do you understand what they mean. I mean do you understand this? God's commands are not designed to be evil and intentionally burdensome. God's commands are not designed to bind you up and make life miserable. God's commands are designed to bring us joy. Think about this for a minute, guys. Who created the universe? 
Easy answer, guys. God, okay? All right, God. Say it with me. God created the heavens and the earth. Thank you. All right, good. We're awake. If God created life as we know it, might it stand to philosophical reason that he might know the best way that that might function? Not your philosophy teacher. Not your roommate. Not your boss. Might it make more logical sense that if God is real and he really did create the heavens and the earth, he might know a thing or two more about the way this life is supposed to operate? If I want to know the Windows operating system, I'm not going to call a Mac guy. And if I did, what would you think of me? You're an idiot, Kevin. Clearly the Mac guy's not going to have a clue how to help you with your Windows PC. Maybe he might give you some, you know, idea of like placing the Windows PC directly into the trash and getting a Mac, but whatever it might be. By the way, I'm a PC guy, okay? So don't, don't think this is my, through me throwing my support behind Apple products. But it makes logical sense to think, who's going to know more about what's best for you, you or God? I can give you a really simple illustration, right? Because here's kind of what we're taught as Americans, right? We're kind of taught that self-actualization and self-esteem is everything, and that you know what's best for you. Anyone who's ever raised a kid knows that that is not true. I, I share this with you guys sometimes jokingly, but, I, but I'm not really kidding. The primary job of a parent of a toddler is to prevent them from killing themselves. And when you do things like preventing them from killing themselves, guess what the toddler's reaction typically is? Hatred. How could you do this to me, Dad? I want to climb in the hot oven. That fire looks amazing. Let's get in it and dance around. Oh, you mean I, th there's a way for me to climb up this tree and then get on the roof and jump off onto the trampoline? Let's do it. This is the mind of a toddler. Right? Because guess what? They don't know what's best for them. Here's the thing. Guess what the terminology God uses to describe human beings is in Scripture? Sheep. Like the dumbest of animals in the animal kingdom. You and I are described as sheep. Okay? So that might give you a little bit of a hint of what God thinks about your intellectual prowess. So it stands to reason then that God might know a thing or two about life and the way that it operates more than us. Right? I think about it through this, through this lens. Right? Frequently when we're making decisions and we're enslaved to sin, right, we're fooled or blinded by that thing selling us a bill of goods or promises that it can't come through on. Right? When I look back on my own life, when I was heavily involved in the party scene and in, um, abusing alcohol, drunkenness was something I pursued with, with reckless abandon. I was excited about it. I, couldn't, I literally could not wait till the next time I was going to drink again. And what that was promising me was that I would have a good time. I wouldn't have to face my problems for a season. 
that I, I could just get drunk and not have to think about anything and that I would be enjoying a social time with my friends. That was the promise of what drunkenness brought me. The reality of what it brought me was that my issues never went away. They were always there when I sobered up. Typically had a hangover on top of it. The damage I was doing internally to my organs, I'm not quite sure of. And not only that, but the, the promise of fun oftentimes isn't the reality of what alcohol actually brings. I, I, I looked up some, some, just some statistics on alcohol use and alcohol abuse this past week, and here's one that was striking to me. The NRC on Domestic Violence, the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, reports that 50% of all sexual assaults are alcohol-related. Meaning that if alcohol is heavily involved, guess what you can do? You can flip a coin on whether there there might be a sexual assault involved with that. Or at least when looking at a sexual assault, you can flip a coin on whether alcohol was involved. The promise was all these things, and yet guess what? It never lived up to that promise. Right, another one for me, sex outside of marriage. Right, I'm free, it's my own body, I'm experimenting, don't I want to know more? Right, shouldn't I experiment and get good at, at sex and all these things before marriage? It's a frequent one I hear, how can I know I'll be any good in marriage if I've never experimented beforehand? That's it's what, it's what we tell ourselves, right? And yet inevitably, right, I can say from experience That sex outside of marriage opened my heart up and the the heart of those that I was involved with to more pain and hurt in the long run. One person in particular, we dated probably, the relationship lasted about nine months. The relationship probably lasted eight months longer than it should have. And let me just just throw this out there, okay? Just because if you've ever thought what I've just said, that this idea of experimenting and practicing and knowing better is going to be better for your marriage one day, can I explain to you how dumb that logic is? Okay, because here's what we know about all human beings, right? Every one of us in this room is unique, correct? So how is having sex with someone else going to help you with another different unique individual? Newsflash, it doesn't. I can tell you right now that every sexual experience I had before I entered marriage did nothing to help me with intimacy with my wife, but it did a lot to harm it. Wholeheartedly can tell you that. I've been sold a good, a set of goods, by this idea, this notion that this is what I should be after, and I was lied to. Oftentimes, sex outside of marriage, right, all it does when it, when it, when it comes into marriage what it often does is bring false expectations and ideas of what intimacy is supposed to look like with your spouse, to which sometimes can take months or years to work through together before you actually can finally enjoy intimacy in the way that God designed it. Right, that we seek after these things thinking that they're gonna bring us freedom, and look at what Paul actually says. He says that the fruit of them is actually death. He's like, these things that you're now ashamed of, what was the fruit of those things? The fruit of them is death. And not just, not just death again in the eternal sense, but death in, the, in, in a broken life now. 
These things are not God and they do not deliver. Right? Sex promises fulfillment, it doesn't deliver. Money promises fulfillment, it doesn't deliver. Fame promises fulfillment, it doesn't deliver. But God does. He says this, For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So you go from death and unenjoyment of this world to sanctification, which is more joy now, and eternal life, which is glory in the future. So where are we going? As I said earlier, we live as one of the most independent societies the world has ever seen. And as Americans, we seek freedom and independence as pretty much our chief goals and what we desire more than anything. Be who you want to be. Self-esteem and self-actualization are, are touted as the best thing our world has to offer and that you can be your own God and do whatever you want and no one can tell you what to be, just be you. That, I mean, that seems to be the reigning c- cultural worldview right now currently, in the, in, at least in the West. And even if you don't believe that, here's, here's something important for you to remember. Your neighbor probably does. And you're called to be a witness to them. So even if you're not wrestling with this internally, maybe on the level that Paul is sharing right now, someone close to you is. And look at what Paul says in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, look, if you want to go the route of freedom from righteousness and living however you want and doing your own thing, that's fine. You, you, sin pays. You'll get wages for it. What you have earned is death, a broken life. One of, my, one of the lines that has stuck with me over the course of probably my last t- 12 years of being a Christian is a, a line I heard, I think, back in 2007 from Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church out in Dallas, Texas. He says this, No one robs you of more joy than you. No one robs you of more joy than yourself. Because God has given us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness and the ability to actually live that out and enjoy that in freedom and we frequently choose the opposite. But it doesn't have to be that way though. Here we have Paul saying all this stuff and we're kind of nailing this idea of slavery to sin and obedience to it and what it looks like but look at what he says in the last part of verse 23. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See that everything that sin promises, right, it promises all these things and yet it doesn't come through on it. And if you look at it, right, all we know about these false gods is that we work to appease them and we work harder and harder and harder and harder to keep them going. That's our wages, work. And yet God looks at our rebellion. He looks at my slavery to sin. My refusal to enjoy life abundantly the way he intended it to be. And he looks upon me, a filthy sinner, and says, Kevin, here's a rescue plan. I'll send my own son 
and the likeness of sinful flesh, and he's going to live a perfect life of obedience and joy unto me. And then he is going to be crucified at the hand of sinners, not for his own sin, Kevin, but for yours. So that he might pay the wages of your sin. And in paying the wages of your sin and my wrath being poured out on him instead of you, he's going to credit to you. He's going to give you the free gift of righteousness. He's going to declare you not guilty of your sin. He's going to give you his freedom from slavery. He's going to baptize you into his death to sin. And he's going to raise you to new life again over sin, conquering death. That's the gospel. That's what God has done. This is a historical and theological truth about what God has done for us. And what is secured for us is life. Both eternal life, but also life in the here and now to experience it the way that God has designed it in joy. So here's my charge to you guys this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, or at least a professing Christian here this morning, sit back and ask yourself, what am I walking back into slavery to that I don't need to be enslaved to any longer? Maybe it's acceptance and approval. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's performance. Maybe it's a combination of all those things that you would sit there in our time of reflection during communion, that you might sit there and, and just quietly reflect on what you might be running back to. That what you might be submitting to as a master that has no power over you any longer. And that you might sit there and you might, by God's grace, have that sin revealed before you and that you would confess it and that you would repent of it and then you would joyfully come up here and that you would take communion thanking God that Jesus Christ's flesh and blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and that by taking communion you're not broken up and unable to move and and distraught over your sin in such a way that it paralyzes you but instead you come up and you worship Jesus for what he's done because taking communion is an act of worship and that you could then go back to your seat and that you could sing and pray and rejoice because what God has done is amazing if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're here because some random friend invited you and you don't really know why you're here. Here's what I want to leave you with. I promise you, you are a slave to something. You are. Whether you can see it now or not, you are. I know it to be true because I was at one time. Primarily to myself. If there are people that in this room that have known me since I was seven years old. If my sister were here this morning, I don't know if she is, she's known me since even younger than that. When I lived unto myself, and slavery to sin, I can tell you what followed, self-destruction, every time. 
every time. Didn't always look like it, but it was self-destructive every time. But it doesn't have to be that way. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today can be the day whereby repentance and faith, you confess your sin, what you're enslaved to, and trust that Jesus is who he said he was, that he really did die for you, that he really did raise from the dead so that you might have new life and might be able to live in freedom and joyful obedience to him. And yet you today can move from death to life. There's a moment in every Christian's life where that happens. My prayer is that for you guys that are in here this morning, where that's already the case for you, that you might experience God more fully this morning through repentance and faith and worshiping him. And if you're not a Christian, that this morning would be where God finally reveals himself to you fully, where you might know him as God and Savior. I'm gonna pray for you right now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, your word is powerful and true and sufficient for us. And I thank you for that. I thank you that it's true. Lord, I thank you that you've made it abundantly clear to me the depths of my own wickedness and my own sinfulness but also the depths and the riches of your grace towards us in Jesus. Father, I pray for each and every man and woman in this room this morning. Father, that you might send your Holy Spirit to move in us in such a way that we might know you more fully that we might die to sin and live unto you. And that in that, we would experience the joy that comes from being adopted as sons of the Most High God. That each and every one of us in this room might experience true joy in you. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to preach your word, but I now ask you to do a work that only you can do and I cannot and that is to draw each and every one of us by repentance and faith towards you so that we might worship you more and make much of your name here in Gainesville. Jesus, I'm by faith expecting you to move. And I thank you that I can trust that because of the promises you have made in your word. Thank you for the men and women that are here this morning, God. I love them, and I'm even more encouraged to know that you love them more. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. I love you.